Hello folks, welcome to another episode of Growing Our Future podcast, where we speak with people from education, health, and environmental sectors about what they're doing in the world to make it a healthier and more sustainable planet. Today, our guest is Christopher Hawkins, a Texas A&M graduate who will be talking to us about his work in the past, present, and future. Welcome, Chris. How's it going, brother? Hi, doing well. Thank you for having me today. Go ahead and, you know, introduce yourself. You know, what are you doing right now and how are you related to urban agriculture or health or education? Okay. So, again, my name is Christopher Hawkins. I I'm a former student of Texas A&M University. I'm also a former student for St. Philip's College in San Antonio. I feel like that's where a lot of my background started and a lot of my story got created was at the community college level. Okay, and so tell me a little so, bit about that. We met you when you were at St. Philip's College. There's a, a community work-study program and uh, Dr. Trevino Martha Trevino said, hey, I got this great student, mm-hmm. you know, who I think would fit well with y'all. So tell me a little bit about what you're doing at St. Phillips and in your time in that work-study program. Yeah. So at St. Phillips, we had seen that there was a small garden club present, but it was off campus. Not many people knew about it. It was a lot not too far away from St. Phillips. Mm-hmm, I remember and that. It wasn't being maintenanced as much. Mm-hmm. I think it was called Twin Sisters Gardens. Yeah. Okay. Uh, from there, at some point, the St. Phillips College and that community leader or organization decided not to work with each other anymore. So the garden pretty much had gotten shut down. So a friend of mine and I, we were going to St. Phillips at that time, we were like, Hey, why don't we just start our own garden club? We'll establish it on campus and we'll rekindle an actual garden club. So that's what we set out to do. And that took a long time, but Dr. Javino was a great help in assisting with networking us into the right internships and fellowships in order to get the funding and backing that we needed for that garden. As well as a big shout out to Miss White from St. Philip's College. She was a huge influence with that garden as well. But um, when I had evolved from just being the garden club president, I switched over to you guys at Gardopia and doing that internship. That was extremely helpful into helping me simulate what it's like to work in a suburban like farming environment and how how to navigate through all that. So I really enjoyed my time there. And so what were you studying at St. Phillips and what got you into gardening? Like, did you garden as a kid with your parents? Did your grandma garden? Were you like, people saw plants one day and you're like, oh, this is cool. Yeah. So what got me into gardening definitely started when I was a kid. I 
the first thing I really planted was a, a honeydew. I just popped open a honeydew from H E B. Those are good. Yeah, I had some seeds and threw them down and was like started planting. Ever since then, I kept wanting to do more and difficult types of planting. And back to what I studied at St. Phillips. When I was there, I was going for my just an associates, associates of science or liberal sciences. Where I was focused on was biology. But I ended up switching out of biology when I went to Texas A&M University. I switched to horticultural sciences, so much more plant focus. And so I got one more question about your gardening before we get into Texas A&M. When you grew that honeydew melon, do you remember harvesting it? And how old were you? Mm, I think I was of the age of about seven or eight. I did. I was able to harvest and eat it. I think that's what kind of helps you really get into it Uh because you've grown and created the fruit of your labor, you know? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so that's awesome. uh, We we work with so many youth. And so, you know, for you to remember at seven years old growing something and harvesting, that's a lifelong memory. And it's it's a life skill that you're going to have for the rest of your life. So it's reassuring, you know, this work that we're doing. Okay, so you interned with us. What was one or two things that you really enjoyed uh, doing with us? I really enjoyed being in different gardens, seeing how spread out Gardopia was, going to the San Antonio Country Club, which I had no idea that they even would have a garden or be open to things like that. So experiencing how to integrate even small farms or small like animal husbandry setups in our local communities, like just any public day, uh, public residential areas, that was very pleasing to me. Cause I was like, well, if we did this at every single restaurant or every single resident or even every other resident, we can start swapping foods. We can help eliminate food deserts. Overall, it's just good for our population and community. I, I like that about Cardopi. Heck yeah. No, I'm on the same page with you, right? It's like a lot of times we think that the challenges of this planet are, are beyond us, right? But, you know, doing small acts, and if a lot of people do a lot of small acts, they can start to add up, mm-hmm. right? I do remember, I have to send you some pictures from the country club, man. You were really instrumental helping us get that project off the ground and, and maintaining it. So I got to give you kudos and all the other interns that I worked with. And so you, when you left St. Phillips, you got a job or internship with the USDA. Is that right? That's correct. Right after completing my associates, I got a fellowship for USDA in 2020. So I headed out to Maryland to go work for Animal Parasitic Disease Laboratories for Beltsville Agriculture Research Center. That was working with Trichinella spiralis. It is a zoonotic pathogen derived from pork and pork products. So we're screening the pork from all farmers from across the nation, or a lot of farmers that were in this program. And we screen millions of samples to see how many parasites we can find. And it's 
more or less a biosecurity measure for the nation. Gotcha, gotcha. And did farmers opt into that? Was was it a grant program? Like how how did uh, how did all that work? Mm, I don't know the full details on that. It was a lot of like knock on door for farmers, like, hey, we have okay. this project going on. We need to screen for these. I yeah. think there was an incentive for the farmers to do these projects. I'm not sure yeah. exactly how much. Okay. But what I was trying to do with my colleagues in our research projects was to find, is this the cheapest form or method to screen for this parasite? Or are there cheaper standards that are still as effective? So our main method to look for this parasite was called magnetic stir bar method. But we look into different things like ELISA serology, lateral flow, recombinase polymerase amplifications, just any other screening methods, particularly for this parasite. We basically created an economics budget of how much it takes to run that type of project. And is it the cheapest method? How long would it take from the time you got a sample? And did you get a sample of muscle, I assume, a sample of meat? Um, and, yep. and what did that process look like from getting that raw sample to the analysis? I didn't do as much of the analysis base because I was I was just more an intern learning the laboratory methodology. So from the start, we would get a big bag and the bag would contain small one inch pieces. There'd be a hundred of those pieces in one bag. Like cubes, Each, like one by one. Right. Right. Okay. Each one of those little bits or pieces represents one pig from that farm. So if a farmer turned in two bags, that's 200 samples, it's 200 different pigs, right? So from that, we would get those samples. We would perform the magnetic starbar method, which is taking those samples and digesting them in an artificial funnel. So that artificial funnel is to replicate digestive systems in general. So we would add hydrochloric acid and pepsin to dissolve the muscle tissue. And we would filter, filter, filter. And at the end, we would screen for the parasite. Okay. And was there a high amounts of finding the parasites? What was that percentage like in from farm to farm? really really low relatively low so i i was with usda for a year and seven months during that time i only heard maybe one or two parasites that had been found out of about close to two million samples two so million? it is quite a, a bit <laughs> yes we had three million samples in total right now the project is still going on they still have about close to a million samples left. Oh, so wow. I'm going to try to go back up there and help them out a little bit more. Are you? Okay. So you were at the, the lab, you were taking classes online, and then at some point in time, you stopped and continued school. Is that correct? Were you working in any labs or anything at A&M? Yes, absolutely. So I was working at entomology and livestock department for Texas A&M University. I was working in a fly lab 
but also uh, our main lab is a tick lab. So what I would do in the fly lab is it's kind of animal husbandry, taking care of fly colonies, making <laughs> sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, basically a fly pimp, you know, like making sure that they're getting fresh blood, that I'm changing their cages, collecting their eggs, doing inventory and just regular spreadsheet data entry. I never thought I would hear of a fly farm. Yeah, well, oh, it, it's a fly lab rather. So it sure. it's just to, it, it's for stable flies. So stable, stable. flies... Stable flies, yeah. So more prone to be around like cattle. The, the flies that if they land on you, they're gonna try to suck your blood. So they're the big ones. Yeah, they're pretty. They're, they're decently sized. They're not too overly big, but they will try to get blood. So you can see how they can be uh, pathogenic to and dangerous to your cattle. Heck yeah, I hate I hate those flies. Yeah. So and when I would go to the fly lab. Uh, my girlfriend would tell me, hey, like, you know, try not to get bit today because it doesn't matter what you would wear. They're going to get you. Yeah. Yeah. So you worked in that fly lab and you were doing the analysis and, and sort of work on that. What were what we are looking for? That lab, that colony is just for holding. So as in that's 10 years or more of research that have come from those flies. So each each colony has its own set of like genetic material that has resistances against different chemicals or there's just wild types. So we would mainly just keep those colonies for other universities. If they wanted to do experiments, they can take some of those colonies and perform the experiments on their own. So it was more about oh. upkeeping that colony itself. I see. I see. And then others would be able to take it away. All right. And so after you finish that, what else, what are there some memories you have at A&M and what does the future look like for you now that you've graduated? Apart from the fly lab, when we entered the other main entomology lab, it was a tick lab. In that lab, we would get large pieces of cowhide and you would basically cut the cowhide in half. So you have a left and right side. Then you would take those left and right side and cut them into small 15 by 15 centimeter pieces. And we would take those pieces and look for ticks. So the reason for that is to see where are the ticks favoring on the cattle so that we, we can know how to apply better treatments or where we know like the nymph stages will be so we're able to collect x amount of ticks from any hide on a manual visual inspection and then we would go back and do another digestive so we would do it in potassium hydroxide solution and water to digest the rest of the tissue so we would ensure collecting as many ticks as possible so that was a really fun lab is really eye-opening onto what I can do with biological sciences, you know, expanding further than just working with flies. But very good experience out there. Okay, so you were in the, the lab doing ticks. And were y'all looking for ticks 
just to get a tick count or are you looking for like a Lyme disease? What, what, what were y'all looking for on the tick side of things? The grad students took the Lyme disease approach and some were looking into the main PIs looking into more, uh, I guess, uh, drug resistances or mm. anything to help out with the controlling of the population of ticks. I'm not exactly too sure. I felt like I was a more of a the lab rat, the, the <laughs> one doing the dissections, the one collecting everything, collecting all the ticks, doing all the dissections, digestions. So I didn't do as much of the analytical portion rather than all the other lab methods. Okay. And now that I'm thinking about it, didn't you do a program where you went to like Costa Rica and, and did some work on primates or yeah. something? Yeah. Tell yes. me a little bit about that. Well, that sounds fun. So in 2019, this is when I was still with St. Philip's College, I was invited to go to Costa Rica with Dr. Mary Caleta. She's a microbiologist or evolutionary microbiologist, geneticist type of professor. So she has a study site out in Costa Rica. And I was able to attend a primate behavioral ecology program with St. Philip's College and Ithaca College from New York. And we we're able to do a collaboration out there to check on the how their monkeys health aspects. So we would and some people might be uncomfortable with this, but we would do darting and capturing of howler monkeys. So we would assess their blood, biochemistry. We would do smears. We would check every single aspect of the monkey as far as their growth habits on their, their arms, their legs, their canines, their molars. Every, just every single aspect of the monkey would get checked on to see what health standard are they. On top of just drawing blood collection and everything, a lot of us were doing fecal samples collections. So we'd be out there in the woods waiting for a monkey to poop so we can go pick it up and we can get some genetics out of that. Okay. Aside from the uh, science side of things, what was your favorite thing about Costa Rica? I've never been before. Beautiful place, wonderful people, amazing food. The fruits are so fresh and so vivid. I don't think I'll be able to, to really eat a pineapple and feel the same as far as a U.S. pineapple versus something that's straight from Costa Rica. I know the dull farms aren't that great out there as far as the locals don't appreciate it, but tasty. So tell me this, Chris, what, what does the future look like for you? Where, where are you headed now? And you know, what are some aspirations as you continue uh, this journey? So my future is looking pretty good. I seem to be going back to the USDA to finish out the project. I have also been accepted to Oak Ridge National Laboratories in Tennessee to work with Dr. Rush, who's a mycologist and fungal pathogen expert. He'll be teaching me more or less plant pathology and LC mass spectrometry and different other scientific approaches to study plant metabolites. At, that'll be like a 10-week fellowship during the summer. After that, I have been invited to go speak with the biological sciences department at Notre Dame 
for a PhD fellowship. So those are my plans. Nice, nice, man. That is awesome. It's just so amazing, you know, to see folks here in San Antonio, you know, going from a community college to a state college to, you know, USDA federal labs and, you know, continuing to pursue your education. You know, if you could study any animal or plant or any topic, what would be like your top one or two things that you're really interested in? I like that question because I actually ask that question to other people all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tardigrades would be really cool. Those little, right. you know, I'm talking about the little uh, water bears. Where, oh, yeah. I yeah. saw South Park episode with them. Yeah. <laughs> Tardigrades would be amazing to really I don't know, hone in or specialize in. I think that would be a fun field in general. Yeah. Uh, what are they? And then, what do they do? Are they like little grizzly um, bears? Or what? <laughs> I'm, I'm not too sure on the exact uh, approach of what they do, but that's why I find them very interesting. The other aspect I think would be science, uh, soil science, not, not just science, soil, soil science. science. Okay. Yeah, Definitely. I think that is the, the pinnacle of what it means to be like in agriculture is everything really starts with the, the soil, you know? 100, yeah. You know, it's just good to hear your story. And that's what we want to do. We want to tell stories and uh, essentially continue the conversation, of course, around garden-based learning. And, uh, you know, you can get a PhD in, in soil science or zoology or whatever. Or, you know, you can start a garden club at a community college. Like, there's just so many different approaches to it, right? And there's something for everybody. And that's what's amazing about urban agriculture is um, it's non-discriminatory. It doesn't matter what level of education you're at, there's an opportunity to plug in and gain more knowledge uh, for your health and wellness and hopefully to create a little bit more sustainability on this planet and resiliency. So, again, looking forward to continuing this conversation with you, Chris. I know you're in town for a little bit, man, so if you want to get your hands dirty, feel free to reach out. We're steady working day after day. And if not, you know, again, you know, feel free. You got my number, so let's stay in touch. Absolutely. I'll let you know. Appreciate it. All right, brother. Talk to y'all later. Y'all have a good one. Thank you. Keep it healthy, bust it. Got that good taste. Got an appetite for flavor and an appetite for taste.